0: G'day, hey Tilda Joy here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news, workers' stories and social justice issues. This episode was recorded in isolation for 3CR Community Radio and broadcast nationally by the Community Radio Network. This program is produced on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations and we pay our respects to their elders past and present. And this time of year it's especially important to acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded over any part of this continent. It's a traumatic time for First Nations people everywhere across the colony, as we gear up for another invasion day. We're pre-recording this episode, but already at this point, the rhetoric around the celebration of the founding of this illegitimate, genocidal settler colony known as Australia has ramped up with the Prime Minister slamming Cricket Australia for branding their events as occurring on January the 26th, rather than Australia Day, exhorting them to put a little more focus on cricket and a little less on politics. It's astonishing to me how Cricket Australia, advertising the actual date rather than trying to tie in with the nationals holiday, is somehow focusing on politics. But this is the histrionic level of the culture war we live in, where just the omission of the preferred name of the day is enough to attract the ire of the most powerful man in the country. Conservative sensitivity seems to be at an all-time high. Scott Morrison went on to say, and I quote, You know, on Australia Day, it's all about acknowledging how far we've come when those 12 ships turned up in Sydney all those years ago, it wasn't a particularly flash day for the people on those vessels either. Ignoring the fact that the first fleet was 11 ships and not 12, this is a breathtakingly insensitive way to describe the landing of Captain Cook, which led to the outright theft of an entire continent, 250 years of genocide, chattel slavery, generations of stolen children, the destruction of lands, waters, languages and culture and the establishment of the highest incarceration rates of any population in human history. And these aren't historical events either, rather they represent the ongoing process of colonisation that persists to this day. It's unfortunate that Cook and the boys had a bad day, for whatever reason the Prime Minister seems to think that is, but that is in no way comparable to the atrocities that led to the calls we see currently, which are increasingly not to change the date, but to abolish Australia Day altogether. The truth is that First Nations peoples have marked January 26th as a day of mourning and survival since at least 1938, while the Australia Day we see nationalists rending their garments over today, every year, regular as clockwork. That Australia Day was only formalised in 1994. Do we really value less than 30 years of settler culture over the tens of thousands of years of First Nations occupation? Perhaps that's a question better left unanswered at this point. Marches across the continent have been set to take place on Invasion Day. In most major cities, these events have been organised by warriors of the Aboriginal resistance, also known as war. Here in so-called Melbourne, COVID-19 restrictions have ensured an added burden to the rally organisers, as groups are limited to 100 people, meaning that rally marshals will have an awesome task at hand, keeping the rally compliant with public health regulations, while also warding off the usual attacks from Victoria Police and other groups of white supremacists. Meanwhile, the Premier of so called Victoria, Daniel Andrews, had denounced the Invasion Day march, stating, It's no time to be protesting, it just isn't. We've built something precious and unique, Victorians have, through their sacrifice and their commitment and their compassion for each other, and we have to safeguard that. This is laughable, considering the massive, static crowds expected at cricket and tennis venues over the coming days. The willingness of Daniel Andrews to leverage the virus to bludgeon social justice activists is nothing new. We've seen it at the Bell Matra car convoy in April of 2020, the attack on the Jabberrung Heritage Protection Embassy in September, just before COVID-19 restrictions were set to ease, and the repressive actions of Victoria Police outside the Park Hotel Detention Centre in recent weeks. It's important to remember that this year's Invasion Day in so-called Melbourne is somewhat unique in that there will be no official government-sponsored Australia Day march in the city. Perhaps this is part of the reason behind Dan Andrews' denunciation of the Invasion Day march. The past few years have seen the Invasion Day event overshadow the official celebrations. Perhaps the tide is turning against this grotesque celebration of the murderous realities of colonisation. This week we're going to cover some of the First Nations stories that emerged over the course of 2020 before taking a look back to two major strikes taken by Indigenous workers in the 20th century, the 1946 Pilbara strike and the Wave Hill walk-off. But first, let's cover a little bit of news. In a move that highlights the purposeful and cynical nature of the government's administration of the culture war, that is the 26th of January, leaks have emerged announcing that as part of the government's Australia Day celebrations, international pariah Margaret Court is set to receive the nation's highest honour, an Order of Australia medal. A renowned homophobe, transphobe, racist and former tennis player, Court has come under fire in recent years by tennis players internationally, calling for Margaret Court Arena to be renamed in light of Court's increasingly hostile stance towards the queer community. In light of this leak, Dr. Clara Sue, a transgender doctor who has received the Order of Australia in 2016 for her service to the queer community in the fight against HIV, has returned her medal, stating that the decision to bestow the honour upon Court promotes discrimination. Like Prime Minister Scott Morrison, Margaret Court is a Pentecostalist, describing herself variously as a pastor or reverend, and is known to have performed faith healings at megachurch gatherings in the recent past. In other award-related news, the government has announced that COVID-19 honours will be awarded on the Queen's birthday holiday to recognise the contributions of frontline workers over the course of the pandemic. You'd think that one way to achieve that would be to raise the wages of supermarket workers and food couriers who have done an enormous service in keeping our community safe over the past year. But in this country, you can't even say that an Uber driver is an employee, and the government is pushing ahead with plans to waive accountability for bosses who have underpaid casual workers for giving an estimated $34 billion in stolen wages for those very same frontline workers. had some good news for 46 refugees held in detention at the Park Hotel in so-called Melbourne who've been released into the community on temporary protection visas after years of indefinite detention. Unfortunately, 14 men remained imprisoned at the Park Hotel Detention Centre and as many as 100 refugees are detained in similar conditions across the continent. These detainees, transferred from offshore prison camps in Manus Island and Nauru for medical treatment in so-called Australia, have all been found to have a legitimate claim for asylum, and had been locked up for as long as eight years, having committed no crime. An elated ex-detainee, Mustafa Azimitaba, affectionately known as Moz, tweeted on Saturday, 48 hours after eight years in detention, I am here in the Yarra Valley at a Jimmy Barnes concert, the most Aussie experience I could ever imagine. I am so deeply grateful to Jimmy and the Barnes family for the invitation. Hashtag game over. It speaks to the kind-heartedness of Moz, that he characterises Australia by the music of Barnsley rather than the cruelty of his mistreatment. <laughs> in some more directly union related news, workers at Peter's Ice Creams are taking industrial action with the United Workers Union, from the UWU release. Workers at Peter's Ice Cream production facility in southeast Melbourne are set to take industrial action in their fight to stop the slashing of wages for casual workers. The initial protected action will commence on Friday, the 22nd of January at 12.01am in the form of an indefinite ban on overtime. Peters, whose well-known brands include Drumstick, Maxibon and Frosty Fruit, have failed to listen to workers' concerns around casualisation and low pay since negotiations began in March last year. Workers have already rejected the company's offer that would cut the hourly wage of casual employees by more than $9 per hour. Peters maintains a highly casualised workforce. More than 30% of workers are in insecure casual work, many being at the company for years without the offer of a secure permanent job. As essential workers, both casual and permanent employees have been required to put health and safety on the line throughout the pandemic. Productivity at Peters is up or equal to previous years, and yet this multi-million dollar company is looking to slash the wages of Victoria's insecure workforce, said Neil Smith, United Workers' Union National Dairy Coordinator. We call on Peters to respect the sacrifices essential workers have made for them and provide a fair wage increase and secure employment. During the COVID-19 crisis, Peters has refused requests for paid pandemic leave, a safety measure workers at other food production facilities across Victoria have been able to successfully negotiate, allowing low-paid workers to afford time off to get tested for the virus. Many other companies in the Australian food industry have also rewarded workers with a pandemic bonus recognizing their work. Workers at Peter's, however, have not received any such bonus. Peter's, Australia's most widely distributed ice cream producer, are known for their ruthless approach to operations. The company are currently being sued by the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission for unlawfully preventing competition. This is the second consecutive enterprise bargaining agreement where workers at Peter's have been forced to take industrial action in order to protect the wages and conditions for casual workers. (laughs) Listening to Steep Together, recorded for 3CR Community Radio, and coming to your local community radio station via the Community Radio Network. For the next part of the show, I'd like to cover a few of the stories that highlight the struggle for First Nations peoples over the course of 2020. One major story was the destruction of the Jukun Gorge in the Pilbara region of so called Western Australia by mining giant Rio Tinto. The Jukun Gorge Caves are known to have been occupied by Putu, Kunti, Kurama and Pinakura or PKKP peoples for over 46,000 years. Rio Tinto received initial approval to destroy the site in 2013 so as to expand mining operations. However, a year later, it was discovered that the site was more than twice as old as previously thought and of massive cultural significance to the PKKP peoples who are indigenous to the land. One particularly significant finding was the length of plaited hair woven together from strands of the heads of several different people about 4,000 years old. DNA testing has revealed that the hair had belonged to the direct ancestors of the PKKP people alive today. It was reported to Rio Tinto in 2014 that the site was among the most significant sites in so-called Australia. On the 23rd of May in 2020 Rio Tinto demolished the site despite the PKKP people's objections and urgent requests to halt the work in the week beforehand. However, the laws regarding mining consent do not allow for renegotiation, and Rio was found to have acted lawfully in this act of cultural genocide. In the fallout of this, Rio Tinto CEO Jean-Sebastien Jacques agreed to a pay cut before ultimately stepping down in September. A parliamentary inquiry has been established, which is due to finalise its report this year. During the inquiry, Rio Tinto admitted to improperly handling negotiations with traditional owners and the inquiry has acknowledged the disparity in power between the indigenous peoples and industry in the protection of indigenous heritage and the serious failings of legislation designed to protect indigenous heritage and promote native title. Shortly after this, they restated the legality of Rio Tinto's actions. A member of the inquiry, Liberal Senator Dean Smith, has decried the proposed mining moratorium stating concern for delays in infrastructure projects. In the wake of the historic George Floyd uprisings in the so-called United States, warriors of the Aboriginal resistance organized mass protests under the Black Lives Matter banner, calling for an end to death custody and the systemic racism perpetrated by police across the colony. In so-called Melbourne, a massive protest occurred on the 26th of June in the middle of the first COVID lockdown. This was attended by crowds numbering the tens of thousands. Conservative media would attack the rally for weeks afterwards, claiming that it was the spreader of the virus, while evidence showed not a single case of COVID-19 could be linked to attendance at the rally. Meanwhile, in or so called Sydney, New South Wales police demonstrated a brutal response, kettling protesters in central train station, giving them impossible-to-follow move-on orders, and proceeding to use chemical weapons to attack the protesters gathered. At the same time, dozens of New South Wales police gathered in Hyde Park to defend a statue of James Cook, eager to prevent the toppling of the figure of colonial genocide, as was seen across the world in other Black Lives Matter demonstrations. In August, members of the Mutajulu Community Aboriginal Corporation, in the so-called Northern Territory, blockaded the entrance to Uluru-Kata-Juta National Park. They did this in order to prevent tourists from visiting Uluru and bringing COVID into their community in the process. The blockade took place after the Mutu Julu community threatened to close the park after a plane from Mianjin, or so-called Melbourne, a COVID-19 hotspot at the time, was set to disembark on its way to Uluru. Parks Australia initially refused to close the park, but they ultimately caved after the pressure of the blockade made itself felt. In September, just as so-called Victoria recorded its first day with no community transmission of COVID-19 since entering its four-month lockdown, Victoria police raided the Draburong Heritage Protection Embassy arresting over 50 land defenders and destroying the sacred directions tree, thought to be hundreds of years old. The embassy had been operating for two years, fighting back the plans to destroy this stretch of sacred women's country, home to birthing trees aged over 800 years old. The Andrews government took this action a week out from raising travel restrictions, which prevented people from travelling more than 25 kilometres to be on country. The land defenders arrested were fined with breaches of public health orders, with the fines totalling more than a quarter of a million dollars. In November, the coronial inquest into the death in custody of Yorta Yorta woman Auntie Tanya Day was finalised, with no charges being laid. 55-year-old Tanya Day was killed by a serious head injury sustained in a cell after she was found asleep on a train. Day was detained under public drunkenness laws. Castle Main Police were required to check on Ms. Tanya Day every 30 minutes, However, this did not happen. Auntie Tanya Day was discovered three hours after her injury with a bruised head. After transfer to the Bendigo Hospital, Ms Day died from internal bleeding. The inquest found that Victoria Police's practices of systemic racism were a contributing factor to her death and the Day family has called for an end to internal police investigations and real accountability for police wrongdoing. On the 3rd of December, a National Day of Action was held, organised by warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance, Gumileroid Next Generation and fighting towards treaties, demanding an end to fracking on Gumileroid land after Federal Environment Minister Susan Leigh gave mining giant Santos approval to frack 850 gas wells in Narrabri. The protests, named Gamal Means No, were held in so-called Melbourne, Warang, or so-called Sydney, and Mianjin, so-called Brisbane. These represented for many the first return to street action after many months of harsh lockdown. 2020, like every year in the colony, was a punishing and brutal year for First Nations peoples. The strength of the fight is astounding in the strangest of circumstances, and we do well as a movement to get behind the struggle for sovereignty and justice all year round, and not only on the 26th of January. Recorded for 3CR Community Radio and coming to your local community radio station via the Community Radio Network. I thought we'd close out the show today by reflecting on two of the biggest strikes to have ever taken place in this colony, both by Indigenous workers on stations. The Wave Hill Walk Off started on the 23rd of August in 1966 and was led by Vincent Lingiari, a Gurindji man and one of 200 stockmen and domestic servants who worked on Wave Hill Station in Kakadu, in the so-called Northern Territory. Gurinji people had lived on this land for tens of thousands of years before it was stolen by settlers to be used as land for raising cattle in the 1880s. Subsequently, Gurinji mob were denied access to their traditional water holes, had their traditional plants destroyed, had their hunting animals and prey slaughtered, and faced massacres, for attempting to take cattle to feed themselves with. Eventually, the Gurungi people were forced onto the station, working for food, tea and tobacco. The station owners refused to pay the Indigenous workers in cash wages. The conditions were squalid, with the vesties, the station owners, found to be violating even the extremely discriminatory labour laws that existed at the time. Child labour was common, as was sexual violence against Gurungi women. Amendments to the Pastoral Award, guaranteeing Indigenous workers' basic conditions, were sought by the Northern Australian Workers' Union, but these were vigorously fought by the Vesties, and despite approval in March of '66, the implementation was to be delayed by three years to allow the station owners to adapt. The strike began in 1966, seeking wages equal to those of the white workers, but by 1967 the strike had expanded its demands, moving its camp to a sacred site at Dagaragu, and calling for the return of their ancestral lands. A petition was drafted to the governor, demanding a lease of 13,000 square kilometres around the sacred site to be administered by the Gurindji peoples. The government offered the strikers a 125% pay increase, an amount which was still inferior to the white stockmen's pay. The strikers held out, despite efforts to cut off food supplies to the camp, and remained on strike for nine years until Prime Minister Gough Whitlam, in a highly symbolic move, granted the Gurindji peoples a 30-year lease. This was, however, a historic win for the land rights movement in so-called Australia. In September 2020, the Federal Court recognised the native title rights of the Gurindji people to 5,000 square kilometres of Wakefield Station. It's worth noting that the Northern Australian Workers' Union opposed the strike, as did most of white Australia, and these First Nations workers achieved what they did without the broad support of the union movement, We think today about strikes like the UGL-Esso strike, which dragged on for over two years as monumental struggles that took a massive personal toll on the strikers. Well, the Wave Hill walk-off lasted nine years, and if you think that's a long time, then we should take a look at the longest strike to ever have taken place in the colony. That's the 1946 Pilbara strike, which lasted for a full 11 years. Much like the workers on Wave Hill Station, the workers in the Pilbara were not paid cash wages, instead, only receiving basic foodstuffs and tobacco as pay. The region was home to the sites of multiple massacres, one of which, Skull Springs, was the site of an initial strike planning meeting where as many as 200 Indigenous lawmen convened, representing 23 language groups from across the northwest of the continent. The strike was led by lawmen Dooley Binbin Bin and Clancy McKenna, with the assistance of Don McLeod a white man and a member of the Communist Party, also an activist with the Australian Workers' Union and a supporter of Aboriginal rights. The strike was postponed until the close of World War II and involved over 800 workers from pastoral stations as well as Indigenous workers in the cities of Port Hedland and Marble Bar. The strike spread via crude calendars that were distributed and copied from station to station. They'd scribbled the number of days until the strike on whatever scraps and labels they could find. Once the days were all marked off, the workers walked off their stations on what happened to be May the 1st, May Day. The white station owners knew about the calendars and the strike, but they underestimated the strikers. Eventually, strikers on the Mount Edgar and Limestone stations won concessions in the form of cash wages and improved conditions, and these were used as the standard to be won at worksites across the region. By 1949, the Siemens Union had been convinced to boycott Wolf and the Pilbara, which had put immense pressure on the station owners. Three days into the ban, the government told MacLeod that should the ban be lifted, the government would accede to the striker's demands. However, a week after the ban was lifted, the government denied making any such offer. Again, like the Wave Hill walk-off, the strike did not solely seek pay and conditions. 1% of the West Australian government's budget was required by the British Empire to be dedicated to the welfare of Aboriginal natives in order for so-called Western Australia to gain self-rule. This payment was repealed in 1905, and the Strikers sought to have the government make amends for this unconstitutional repeal. This demand was never conceded, and in 2001, the High Court ruled that the Western Australian government's actions were lawful, echoing darkly the findings of the Federal Court in regards to Rio Tinto's destruction of the Jukin Gorge Caves, also in the Pilbara. Entirely lawful. Well, that's it for Stick Together this week. Stick Together is produced for 3CR Community Radio in so-called Melbourne. Stick Together is made possible through the financial support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation, and we come to you on the Community Radio Network through your local community radio station. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au, or wherever you get your podcasts, and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com. To finish out the show today, I'd like to play Thou Shall Not Steal by Kev Carmody, so I hope you enjoy that. My name's Tilda Joy, and remember... Wherever you are, or whatever you do, there's a union for you. Until next time, stick together. In
1: 1788, down Sydney Cove, first boat people land, and they say, "Sorry, boys, I gained your loss. Swear, are gonna steal your land if you break out new British law." Work your life like a combi With a chain on your neck and hands And they taught us Whoa, black woman, I shall not steal Hey, a black man, I shall not steal Cause a civilized black barbaric life And we teach you Our lives, and we teach you how to kneel. But your history couldn't hide the genocide, the hypocrisy to excuse. Well, Jesus said You're supposed to give the oppressed a better deal. Is it to you? You know, white man, I shall not steal Oh, yeah our land, you better hear. You talk of conservation, keep the forests. Getting two hundred years your materialism has stripped the forest clean And erases the contradiction that's understood by none Mostly that left hand holds a Bible, the right hand holds a gun That's oh, black woman I cannot steal